0: Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 7, The Prophets, the P-H, Prophets. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. You can easily find Episode 1 of Season 1 at 15minutesontheway.com. Don't spell out the number. Otherwise, brace yourself for a conversation with God's voice telling His side of your story. Elijah's finally getting some much-needed rest, and when he wakes, I've got an angel chef waiting for him, not with an espresso and omelet station, but with a freshly baked warm and chewy flatbread and a jar of cool spring water. Elijah consumes them both then sleeps again on his full belly a while. When he wakes this second time, he eats and drinks again, and all his tanks are full once more. Good thing, because he's sent to Mount Sinai. The northern tribes call it Mount Horeb, which is what you'll find in the account in First Kings 19. It's a journey of 40 days and nights. We don't apologize for hitting you over the head with this double parallel to Moses because it's important to get the connection. I'm sure you remember Sinai. You might have forgotten that most of our private sessions thereon with Moses lasted for 40 days and nights. See Exodus 24 and 34 or Deuteronomy 9 and 10. Just as I revealed myself to Moses in a special, precedent-setting way on Sinai, I'm doing the same for Elijah, only differently. Moses got the thunder and lightning, smoke and earthquake treatment. Elijah's already seen the firework side of us. We've got something in store for him he's not expecting, and something that'll drop right into your life today, if you let it. You see, once Elijah's had a good night's sleep in a cave on Sinai after his long journey, lest the doubters say that what happens next is sourced in fatigue-induced hallucination, I tell him to go out, stand on the mountain, and await my arrival. He waits, and a massive wind of biblical proportions whips up, the kind we used to pile up the waters of the sea when full Israel escaped Egypt. Only this time we are not in the wind. Then an earthquake hits, the kind that would have made Moses think, Yep, Yahweh's walking around up there again. Only this time I am not. THEN A FIRE ROLLS THROUGH, NOT STICKING TO ANY ONE BUSH, NOT BURNING ANY OF THEM EITHER, SOMETHING ELSE THAT WOULD HAVE MADE MOSES SAY, IS THAT YOU, LORD? NOPE. WE ARE NOT IN THE FIRE THIS TIME EITHER, NOT IN ANY OF THESE THREE FORCES THAT HAVE ACCOMPANIED OUR PRESENCE IN THE PAST, AND THAT'S THE POINT because the next phenomenon that manifests out of nowhere is barely noticeable compared to the cacophonous events thus far. If we hadn't told Elijah to look and listen for us, he'd surely have missed me. Notice that bit as well. His ears are perked, though, and he hears a still, small whisper, a voice so gentle as to be just one tiny notch louder than imperceptible by human ears. Elijah does hear it and knows it's me. He comes out of the cave, holding his coat up to his face because he's afraid to look at me, just like Moses in our first meeting with him, uh, Exodus three six. The still voice then forms a question. What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah seems to be unsure whether the question is related to his current presence in the cave or pertaining more broadly to his general purpose in life. Elijah's answer covers both possibilities and betrays his recent pessimistic tendencies. Obviously, things are in a poor state of affairs in Israel, but Elijah characterizes them as even worse than they are, essentially replying, I'm the only one left following you, and they're trying to kill me. Well, there are still a good number who've placed their trust in me, including a huge swath of folks that just witnessed our triumph in the Mount Carmel showdown. And they're not all out to get Elijah. Only Jezebel is. Granted, she's got some resources. But if this is about resources... I've been patient and understanding with Elijah, giving him some rest and time to recharge. Now I gently tell him it's time to get back to work. I don't holler at him. Remember, this is still a conversation held in soft, gentle voice. I simply tell him there's still work to be done. Work that will move the Abra plan into the next generation. I tell Elijah he's to commission his own replacement, a fellow we've already picked out and have waiting for him beside the road up ahead, Elisha. Very similar to Elijah, but different in both name and manner. And I correct Elijah's thinking that there are none in Israel that follow me telling him a nice, round, symbolic 7,000 Israelites have not yet bent their 14,000 knees in unfaithful Baal bowing. Now, before we introduce you to Elisha, think about this episode in Elijah's journey. We've already marked out the need for rest in your life, We told you as much at the very beginning when we set the Sabbath as a recharge day for the entire human race. Here in the cave, though, is another lesson. I've already revealed myself to Moses on this very mountain with all the special effects you'd expect from a deity of considerable, make that limitless, size and power, the smoke and rumblings and so on. I am all that any time it's needed. To Elijah, though, I reveal a new side of myself, if you will, the softer, gentler side, the side that speaks to you in the time of quiet and silence. There will be times to shout at you during energetic and dramatic circumstances, times of turmoil of some kind, mostly. But there are also moments where you have to be listening for my voice in order to hear it, when you have to be still a while, away from tumult and distraction. There are things to hear from me in the quiet, quiet which you will have to deliberately seek and guard, things which you will be unable to hear in the midst of busy clamor, the clamor to which your life will default unless you intentionally will it otherwise so make sure you make quiet happen regularly so you can hear me. Elijah's break over, he sets out from the mountain just as we tell him to. Then, sure enough, in a field beside the road, he finds Elisha plowing his father's field with twelve yoke of oxen pulling the plow. That's right, one yoke for every tribe. Thanks for noticing. Elijah walks up to him and hires Elisha right there on the spot, throwing his coat over the younger man's shoulders, conveying our anointing on the next generation, but not removing it from Elijah. There's plenty of spirit to go around. Elisha is so excited and humbled at such an appointment that he slices up the oxen for another impromptu celebratory cookout for all the neighbors. By now, every ox in Israel should know it's going to end up as sacrifice or supper some day, or both. After kissing his folks goodbye after the cookout, Elisha heads away with Elijah to serve as the prophet's apprentice until the old man retires. Before that happens, though, Ahab has to be dealt with. While Elijah's been away, I actually give Ahab a surprise victory over Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, Israel's northeastern neighbor. That's Syria in your habitat. You'll recall that in recent episodes, King Asa of Judah had made an alliance with that Aramean king, drawing Ahab away from his growing incursion into the south. Well, Ben-Hadad has been a growing thorn in Ahab's side. Seeking his heart through blessing, we give Ahab victory over this border enemy, and it's clear that we are the source of that victory, so that he has yet another chance to come around. In full disclosure, I am also keen on proving to Ben-Hadad that I am not simply a neighborhood hillside god, which is what he thinks of me at the start. This is all in First Kings 20, 23 and following. I mean, Ahab was right there and had a front row seat for our victory on Carmel. Then I tell him what strategy will defeat the attacking Ben-Hadad It shouldn't surprise Ahab that he wins. I told him he would if he followed my advice. It shouldn't and doesn't surprise me that Ahab decides to improvise at the end of the final battle and do things his way instead of the way we have prescribed. This is the point where he should be having an epiphany, a come-to-Yahweh moment connecting the dots that draw a large arrow pointing directly at me. Instead, he only does things my way as long as it's convenient for him, then jumps off the moment he thinks he knows better than us. Lest there be the tiniest hint of any positive impact on Ahab from our blessing him with victory, his penultimate episode in Tom proves his colors haven't changed. In fact, they've worsened. As always, you're welcome to read all the details for yourself, 1 Kings 21 covers what we will call the vineyard incident. Ahab and Jezebel have got themselves a winter palace in the sunny Jezreel Valley. Ahab fancies the neighbor's beautiful vineyard full of old growth vines that have been in the family for generations. The old gents wants them to stay in the family for his descendants and refuses the king's offer to purchase the place. Ahab and Jezebel arrange the guy's murder He's stoned to death because of lies Jezebel publishes in Ahab's name, and Ahab takes over the coveted vineyard without paying one red shekel, breaking multiple commandments covering family properties and, of course, murder. Well, Elijah's back on the job for this one and tells Ahab in no uncertain terms that this is the last straw in a long line of last straws. Ahab and his imaginative wife have brought doom down upon themselves by their own sin. The end of Naboth, the vineyard owner, was all Jezebel's idea. Her colorful imagination requires an imaginative end. You can read about that in verse 17. Not only have Ahab and Jezebel sinned themselves, they have caused my children to sin, and like any good parent when someone messes with my kids. They're in for it. Although, to his surprising credit, Ahab believes Elijah's pronouncement of judgment, so much so that the idolatrous king tries to make up with me, doing the things that in his habitat convey remorse and repentance. He tears his clothes, wraps himself in the equivalent of burlap bags, and refuses to eat. And so, as we've done before, we mitigate the coming judgment and hold total disaster off for a generation. Who knew that Ahab had it in him? However, he still has consequences headed his way because he didn't finish off the Arameans like he was supposed to. They come after Ahab for and with vengeance. Suddenly, the southern kingdom is on Tom's radar again because Ahab strikes up an alliance with them in order to deal with the threat. He could have just asked me to handle it, but no. Well, since we last mentioned Judah, back before the northern throne changed hands seven times, and then the three-year drought hit up there, good King Asa of Judah has gone to sleep with his ancestors. His son, Jehoshaphat, has been reigning in Judah in the meantime. And speaking of time, that's all our time for today. So, if you've ever wondered who Jehoshaphat was, tune in next time on The Way. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to support what we do, give us a review on iTunes or Facebook, then share this podcast with your friends. There's a link to the very first episode right under today's podcast on our website, 15minutesontheway.com. We hope today's podcast has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way. And until next time, be good to yourself.